Welcome back to another edition of Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice from Cleveland.com here with Ari Wasserman and Bill Landis. Thank you for joining us for another week of talking about the incredibly awesome Ohio State Buckeyes. And this is going to be our Everything is Awesome podcast. Last week we did, we thought, did we think it was interesting? I thought it was interesting. Did you think it was interesting, Ari? I think everything we do is interesting. We thought it was interesting and it was part of our series about how Ohio State is the most indestructible team in college sports, possibly in all of American sport. But the podcast focused on theorizing how they could ever be bad. And so the headline had the word bad in it. Is that right? <laughs> the headline was, how could Ohio State be bad? And nobody listened. <laughs> you guys didn't want to hear us talk about that, how they might be bad in like 2078 or whatever. Like we were saying they haven't been bad since the 20s. Um, so we're experimenting and we're going to spin it back and we're going to have awesome in the headline this time. Yeah, I think so. So you just are listening to this because the word awesome is in the headline next to Ohio state. So sometimes we believe that maybe our Ohio state coverage is maybe more realistic, maybe more, um, questioning. Some would say negative. I don't know. There's a healthy amount of skepticism. I think in the way we care and the way we cover the team, which is probably the way it should be done, but apparently you can't no, say the word bad. But people love but people love us, right? The people love us, don't they? I think we have people who like us, yeah. Yeah, a few. Maybe one or two. So they're fifty and four under fifty one and four now under Urban Meyer after the win over Bowling Green. And so we're gonna spend the beginning of this podcast talking about how how Ohio State really truly is awesome. Because we don't want to ignore that part of it. We want to question some things. We don't want to ignore the awesome. Um, plus, we want to have it in the headline. And then we'll talk about uh, what did or didn't change on our opinions about this Ohio State team based off the 77-10 to 10 win over Bowling Green on Saturday. But Ari will give you the floor first. What to you is the most awesome thing about Ohio State football right now? I think team assembly. You don't ask the recruiting guy. What no, the most awesome? I can say uniforms. I'm gonna say like, I mean, they have awesome graphics. No, I, I think that just the most awesome thing I think is the most important thing about Ohio State is how they've been completely and utterly dominant across the board in assembling and acquiring talent and uh, putting together classes that keep Ohio State being good every year. And you know, I, I when you are from far away, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. You know, you don't think of Columbus, Ohio as the place you'd want to go to college. And somehow, some way, they've had a culture here that's been here a long time, but they've even taken it to another level, um, getting kids from California and Florida and Texas and everywhere in between to come to Ohio State and assemble things that they haven't really done in the past and to go you know, head-to-head with Alabama. I think that is the best thing that's happening at Ohio State and the best thing that's happening at Ohio State that has the longest, most impactful you know, dividends on the actual team. How different do you think this recruiting is compared to the recruiting that you did cover some under Jim Trestle when Ohio State was still the best team in the Big Ten year after year, winning the Big Ten year after year, competing for national championships year after year? How would you compare the two? Let's say, give me like a nut, like on a hundred scale, you know, like try to, 
give me a range if if this is 100 right now, what was Trestle at? Or if Trestle was at whatever. I think Trestle is probably... The thing about it is, is that Trestle had top 10 recruiting classes every year, so you would think 90. I don't know if Trestle hit the peak of the potential of this program, and I think it might have been hard to realize in the moment because you don't say, well, they're number 7 or number 5 or number 4 in the in the rankings and go, wow, he did a terrible job. I mean, Trestle, to a certain extent, was as good as anybody in the country has been the last you know 15 years since recruiting rankings started being a thing. But I do think that the main difference and the biggest change that Ohio State has seen is the national perspective of it. And I think there were times that for good or for bad, depending on what your opinion is, Trestle took guys in Ohio that were very, very good players um, and really didn't try to get those next level guys from far away that play the same positions. If there's a four a four star prospect wide receiver from Cleveland, then maybe Ohio State wouldn't have gone after Trayvon Grimes six years ago. And maybe that's a bad example because Grimes is from Florida at a program Ohio State recruits, but you get you get what I'm saying. Just a, a program or a player from far away that plays the same position as there is in Ohio. And I like that Urban Meyer has taken the elite of the elite in Ohio continue to recruit those Trestle-like kids so he always has good situations with them, but at the same time has expanded it and turned Ohio State into the national program. And outside of Alabama and Notre Dame, because Indiana doesn't have a ton of talent, I don't know that there's another program in college football right now that recruits more nationally, more successfully than Ohio State. Bill, this is your third season covering Ohio State football. In your time observing the Buckeyes, what is the most awesome thing about them in your opinion? I think that I mean most most of what I already touched on it, it, the the collection of talent and and um, roster building uh, has been done. Are you a, saying the same thing? No, 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 no. Okay. I, I don't I don't want to say the same thing. Although that that is probably at the top of my list. Uh, I will say this: another thing that I have been impressed with, and there's probably a very large exception to this, um, at least in the time that I've been on the beat, and it's only been this is my third season, like you said. Uh, I think Urban Meyer has done a really good job with one large exception of like bringing in really good assistant coaches. And I know that that's easier to do when you're at a place like Ohio State and you won a national championship uh, and you're recruiting at the level that you're recruiting at. But I think he's got really good – like Larry Johnson I think is a really, really good defensive line coach. I think Ed Warner is a really good offensive mind and was a really good offensive line coach before he transitioned to tight ends coach and offensive coordinator. Um, Greg Stoudrawa, um, I guess remains to be seen a little bit, but the offensive line looked okay in his, in his first, uh, game against Bowling Green. And he had a lot of new guys there. Um, and it just seemed like they have coaches on this team who were really good at, um, molding talent. And a large exception to that, I guess, would be Tim Beck, because we don't know yet. Um, I guess we'll get to see when he gets his recruits like Joe Burrow and Dwayne Haskins, how he really brings a quarterback along. Um, this is the awesome positive podcast. Right? I know, but no negative, I, I can't. Right? I can't say all the coaches no are negative. awesome. Nope. and ignore that. <laughs> I think okay. it's, I think that it's a fairly obvious thing that's out there. Um, but am I crazy? I, I, and I don't. I don't follow the coaching staff of every college football team around the country, but it seems like they have guys here who are really good at taking talent that is, that is albeit very good because they're recruiting at a high level, but molding that to fit the system that they want to run in and really bringing guys along. And I know they had that developed here hashtag that they throw all over the place. But I think there's like something to that, actually. There are guys who were drafted last year who probably weren't very good football players when they came to Ohio State and left as guys who were going to be contributors in the NFL as rookies. And I kind of sandbagged you guys. I took the most blanket thing. Talent. Yeah. yeah. My favorite thing about Ohio State, the thing that they do best is they have good players. <laughs> 
Okay, Doug, what do you think's good? <laughs> and make it different. <laughs> uh, yeah, shoes. Um, yeah, you should have said shoes. I feel like that was no, too. If we were covering different. Michigan, I would have said shoes. Be positive. <laughs> uh, yeah, positive. Uh, Ohio State shoes are awesome. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say nine things. Um, I'm going to focus on two things. One is, and it's hard. This is so. I've been around Ohio State football for 12 years now, and I actually I did not cover. Uh, college football before that. So I don't have a direct comparison, but there's just enough around that they never lack for anything from a facility standpoint from, and they are, they are a leader in a lot of this stuff. And this is, again, this is a very broad thing, but they do whatever they want because they have as much money to do it and they have good ideas of what to do. Like they, they constantly, You had sort of like mentioned the graphics, sort of like jokingly, you know, like these recruiting graphics they send out and stuff now. But like when they started doing that on social media and doing cool looking recruiting things and sending cool, like everybody does that now, right? But they were at the beginning of that, weren't they, Ari? Like they were were on on the front line, if not first, in the first wave of, hey, let's not just write letters to kids and say, we want you. Let's do a graphic poster with them looking like a superhero in the middle of Ohio Stadium in a black uniform with their name on the back or whatever. So that kind of thing that I think is easy to take for granted, that they just, they have good ideas because I do think Urban Meyer has assembled a good staff of like innovative people around um, to push the envelope on stuff like that. And then, and this is, this again, it's sort of hard to quantify, but I don't know what people who covered Woody Hayes thought when they were going in to watch a Woody Hayes practice, I mean, as a reporter, or watch a Woody Hayes team or talk to Woody Hayes about, hey, this week you're playing Purdue, what do you think, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what people who covered Bear Bryant every day, if they went in and said, oh, you know, Alabama's playing Ole Miss this week, let's go talk about how your left guard's playing. Um, but this this guy that that we go in and talk to every week is – gonna go down as one of the best people to ever do the thing he does. And Nick Saban already has a statue at Alabama. But I certainly think we might be walking past an Urban Meyer statue one day. And we might be walking past the, you know, we go to the Woody Hayes Athletic Center. We might be going to the Urban Meyer something building (laughs) on the Urban Meyer street. Um, Because of what he's done and going to do at Ohio State what he's already done in his career. And you know, that's one of those things that I think it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to describe it in the moment, but I don't know, you know, 30 years from now, I'll be dead. They'll be talking to you guys, <laughs> but, um, you know, someone will be writing about, oh, Urban Meyer and they'll be, what was it like when you guys were covering Urban Meyer and this and that, and that's what's happening right now, but you're just doing your job, you know? So that's not everywhere. You know, right now in college football, that's at two places. And I think everybody agrees, you know, that that happens at two. That's two places where you would say that right now. Alabama with Nick Saban and here with Urban Meyer. And I think that's so you said player. It's like coach, guy who's in charge of everything. That's another big, giant thing. Am, am I exaggerating that? Tell me if I am. Am I exaggerating that? Or what do you guys well, think you, of Urban Meyer? You cover Trestle. And the thing that I always find fascinating is is that at the height of Trussell's career at Ohio State, so 10 years ago, you were just beginning the 2006 season. 
Ohio State had just beaten Texas. Am I thinking correctly? And yeah, they beat Texas on the road. Was yeah. that the opener of the second game? Whatever, ten years ago. Would you have said the same thing about Tress at the moment? I don't know. Um, and I wrote this. I wrote a story in Tressel's tenth year. I was actually reporting it and writing it as he was telling the, the lies every day that would lead to his downfall, uh, which I think about sometimes in retrospect. But what I thought Trestle did was he did a great job of integrating who he was in with the program, that it became sort of the Trestle way of doing things, and Urban has obviously done that as well. But I don't know. Trestle, to me, still, it was a little bit more of an Ohio story. To me, Ohio State was not at the top of the national scene in those days. He was, re- he was excellent at his peak that, you know, when he won a national title and they go to back-to-back national title games, they won six straight uh, Big Ten titles on the field. He was great in his zone, which was King of Ohio dominate the Big Ten. But I don't think yeah. I would have put him on a national – I don't – you know, if Nick Saban was doing his Nick Saban thing that, back then, I wouldn't have thought well, Pete Saban – and at Saban Trestle, you know, yeah. right there. I, it was not – it was a, a, a step less. And I think that. that's the biggest fundamental difference now if we're going to be – all three of us gave the most awesome thing we think about Ohio State is that I have players. Doug has coach. Landis has atmosphere. <laughs> Co- coaches is what coaches. I Coaches. Yeah. But the fact that Urban Meyer has been able to push the ceiling <clears throat> of Ohio State past what Trestle brought it through in his Ohio zone and making Ohio State a national thing. And I think that's the biggest difference between those two guys. And it does build on each other because Trestle, I don't think, could have... I mean, Trestle won a national title. They hadn't won a national title since 1968. You're not going to go and be the dominant program in college football. With, you got to win one first. Mm-hmm. And he replaced the guy who couldn't beat Michigan. How can you be on the, a dominant player in the national scene if you can't even beat your rival? So Trestle was the in-between step between John Cooper and Urban Meyer that was a necessity. Sometimes, yeah. You know, that that Cooper Cooper had great talent but didn't win a national title, couldn't beat Michigan. Trestle won the national title and beat Michigan. And then owned Ohio in the Big Ten. And owned Ohio. And that set up Urban Meyer to go, what's what's above beating Michigan and dominating the Big Ten and winning a national title here and there? Trying to be the best program in college football. You had to have that Trestle step. To get to the urban, and stuff. sometimes I wonder if Trussell would have ever been able to do what Urban did because he still might be the head. He'd probably be winding it down right about now, anyway, if nothing happened. But like he still laid the foundation for that step. I don't know if Trussell would have ever been capable of going from what he had to what this is. But I think Urban Meyer would have always been able to do what he's doing because I think his personality is different. I think that his the way he approaches things that. You know, if why our facilities don't have the right, I heard, I heard a story, you know, like about facilities of like every little thing that is in the facility needs to be the best always, you know, and um, might have even been from you, but um, just a little stuff. And I don't know that Urban Meyer is ever satisfied with anything and he wants to be the best at everything, whether it's the nice NFL portraits that are hanging on the Woody Hayes wall or whether or not they're winning national championships. And I don't know. And I think that he has that mentality in recruiting. I want something to be better. Whereas maybe Trussell, I'm not going to say he rested on his laurels, but if you've got a four-star kid, like, I don't want... Let's make an example for this year. There's no way Jalen Harris would not be in this class right now if Jim Trussell were the head coach. <clears throat> He's a six-foot-five monster from Cleveland Heights, and I still think there's a chance he might end up in this class, but the fact that there isn't one is just showing, well, we could have Jalen Harris, but I want Trayvon Grimes. And I think that, that is the entire mentality that is a 
recruiting example, but really the basic blanket theory of the way I think Ohio State operates. And again, and that would be the thing um, here on our awesome Ohio State is Awesome mm-hmm. podcast. Doug Maurice, Ari Wasserman, Bill Landis from Cleveland.com. Would anybody think that's not awesome? You know, that's the of like, hey, we're good. What, but why, why are you not potentially taking this Ohio kid who's great because you're chasing a kid from Florida and a kid from Vegas who are a half step better? What about our Ohio kids? You know that, you know, even, and I'm not saying it's not awesome because it's awesome. Everything is awesome. But, you know, that's one of those things. I think that's always a dichotomy for everybody. And we, I sort of theorize that. And the other podcast about how could it ever go downhill is if you lose the balance there, then you can't get Trayvon Grimes and all of a sudden Jalen Harris is a little – those guys are a little angry with you. Um, but that's not happening right now. And the, the thing is – and I'll, Bill, I'll direct this at you. The thing that would have been interesting about Trestle and covering Trestle for as long as I did, you know, he had his style. He had his style, Trestle ball that drove a lot of fans crazy sometimes because he did not beat people 77 to 10. Um and I remember, you know, there was a there was a period of time in there where people wanted a new offense. They wanted, like Jim, I remember asking Jim Trestle very vividly, standing in the hallway inside uh, the Woody Hayes Athletic Center in a place that used to be the media area, which we can't go anymore. Um, it was a nice media area that Trestle had set up for us. We don't go there anymore. I was on the beat for it. He uh, asking him if he would ever get an offensive coordinator. Like you, you wouldn't be the guy. You're the head coach, but would you bring in like an outside guy? And this was sort of at the beginning of the era of the spread. And Ohio State wasn't doing that. And it's funny that it was guys like Rich Rodriguez and Urban Meyer who were pushing the envelope on this a little bit. And I think Ohio State fans were kind of like, man, why aren't, why aren't we doing that? They're scoring 40. We're winning. But we're winning like 27 to 7 because we're making smart special teams plays and not putting the defense in bad situations. But Ohio State fans wanted that and they didn't have it. Along those lines, Bill, I, first of all, this is a, this is like a really complex question to dump on you Great. out of nowhere. What is the next evolution of college football? Jeez. And and it's even if we don't zero in on what it is, if and when it comes, and I'm assuming it will come, two years, five years, ten years, if Urban Meyer is around, will he adjust to it? What if the evolution is, you know what, all these teams with little linebackers and playing six DBs and – Little fast defensive end. The next evolution is the wishbone, and nobody throws it, and you know, big old hosses, and running yeah. the fullback up the middle. It, if if it comes, whatever it is, will Urban Meyer? Would Urban Meyer be the kind of guy who changes, or could we ever see Urban Meyer? And, and I don't really mean this, but for lack for this conversation, could we ever see the college football world pass Urban Meyer by? And I'm going to interrupt before you go, so I'll give you an extra ten seconds to think about it. But we're in a world right now where there are other coaches that were on top of college football five or six years ago who are being questioned. And I'm talking specifically about Les Miles and his inability to change his offense down at LSU, despite the fact that he is running a program a lot like Ohio State in the series that we broke down last week of most indestructible players who owns a state in the South and has a ton of talent. They still are kind of behind the, the, the eight ball a little bit because they haven't adjusted their offense. And I think that that is a huge thing. Like... Mac Brown and other Texas coaches, they didn't adjust till this year. And last night, excuse me, Monday or Sunday night when Texas had the uh, big new offensive spread hurry up that they hadn't had before, they were killing it. People were like, it's about time Texas adjusted. So as Doug said, do you think Ohio State would ever be like, why, like go back to that time? 
Yeah, I think they will. I don't think Gerbermeyer would ever allow himself to be surpassed um, in any regard by anything. Because um, I think we've seen – I wasn't covering the team in 2012, right? But he didn't run his offense in 2012, right? He ran what he could run with the guys that he had. Still looked different. Braxton left, Braxton right. I understand that it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the wishbone, um, but it wasn't what we saw against Bowling Green on Saturday, and that is, I think, the ideal Urban Meyer offense. So I think Urban Meyer, probably more so than most college football coaches, because even Nick Saban was late to the spread offense train. Like he just bought in Lane Kiffin a few years ago. The twenty fourteen was the first year, right, when they played Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl. And late, Nick Saban is, like you said, probably the greatest college football coach of all time. And he was late late to arrive to the spread party and, and had to change his style of offensive football to mesh with the rest of college. Um, so I don't think Urban Meyer would be hesitant to change his style at all. Uh, I think he would find, <clears throat> excuse me, find ways to tweak a, a a game that was trending more towards power running. But I, yeah, I don't, I can't was- imagine the, if college football starts shifting back to power running because that's the adjustment you have to make as defenses try to match spread offenses and switching to more power football will give you a leg up again, I think Urban Meyer would do that because I think in the end he's going to do whatever it takes to win. And we've seen adjustments everywhere. And it's not just about which offensive coordinator you have. We've seen adjustments on how his assistants approach the new NCAA rule, (coughs) the new NCAA rule about when they're allowed to contact kids or the graphics, everything that they've done from a recruiting standpoint. Not maybe just, I mean, the, the game changes all the time with satellite camps. He probably didn't want to go to satellite camps, but people were doing it, so he did it. And I think that like even just showing in other aspects and other realms of the game that he might not want to do something but still does it. And he's even said, I think, in words and press conferences and talking to us that we can't be left behind. So I think that he's actually pretty conscious of that, and that's the most important thing. And, and a great example is as much as he ran the spread at Florida, he did not run tempo. That was a thing that, that was Chip Kelly pushing that tempo and the first thing he did when he got to Ohio State was reach out to a guy that he did not know at all who ran an up-tempo offense, and Tom Herman came and brought up-tempo offense to the Urban Meyer spread, and the result was a national championship, and now Tom Herman being the hottest coach in college football. So that was an Urban Meyer adjustment. That's, you know, for Ohio State fans, and again, Urban's talked about this a lot, but if you didn't know that, I mean, we were just talking this week about, again, like Texas getting up-tempo. Why would anyone not run up-tempo? Why would anybody huddle? You know, why would... Because you just... You get people back on their heels and you spread them out and you attack them before they even know what's coming. Tempo, tempo, tempo. That wasn't Urban Meyer before. Urban Meyer was telling stories when he got here about how he loved to have Tim Tim Tebow in the huddle at Florida looking at guys, looking at guys in the eye and telling them, we need you, brother. JT Barrett's never been in a huddle in his life. He's ne- JT Barrett, like they talk about him like he is Tim Tebow. He's never grabbed Isaiah Prince in the huddle and said, Isaiah, this is it, brother. We need you. So they just, they just run up tempo and go to the line of scrimmage and play. All right, fake ad. We did candles. We did kind of blizzards. I think we did a Lexus ad. This is the spot if you have a business and you would like to reach the wrapped Ohio State audience that we bring to Buckeye Talk. Here at Cleveland.com, your ad could go right here. For instance, the ad for delicious flavored water. Ari, how delicious is that flavored water you're drinking right now? By Splash, is it Splash? It's called Nestle Splash, and I had never had it until like two days ago, and then I got it and I enjoyed it, and now I have like twelve packs of it in my fridge. Nestle Splash, 
You can pretend you're being healthy even when you're not. <laughs> and you're you're a millennial. You guys are millennials, right? This hip millennial audience that you're out, you're going to the clubs and, and the clubs. You like uh, wearing Jordans and stuff, like, and then you grab a splash, and it just it goes right, right. There's no aspartame in it, so even though I don't always live the most healthy lifestyle, I kind of feel like it's one less Diet Coke as I pick up my Cherry Zero to sip out of. Makes me feel good about it. So you can send the uh, case of Splash from Nestle to Bill Landis. No, I'm out. I'm sorry. I uh, Bill, I know we're this... about we're about brand loyalty here, but I can't. There goes that. Splash is not Splash is not my go-to flavor. And water. the Awesome and Podcast. The Everything yeah. is Awesome Podcast. And now we're back sorry. to the negativity. I can't, okay. be, I can't be a sellout. <laughs> Negativity. Speaking of negativity, let's go after Ari. Um, <laughs> Doug's like had a look in his eye. Just so you guys know, uh, he's had a like angryish look in his eye towards me the last two days, and I think I'm about to get. I think I'm about to get it. Okay, Before so we, just, cause we're gonna we take questions at the end, but someone just asked a question that like actually leads into this topic because I was just monitoring Twitter. So at uh, Van Gogh Zero asked after week one results, how have your predictions been revised? Now we can go. <laughs> um, Ari thinks Ohio State is the best, would win the Super Bowl uh, because they beat Bowling Green 77 to 10. Um, actually, Bill, why don't you, we'll, uh, let's get into that a little bit. Drop another couple questions on us, though, now. We'll do a little question break here. Uh, again, we always appreciate your questions. You can tweet them to us at Ari Wasserman at Bill Landis is what is it? Bill Landis twenty five. Bill so Landis three, twenty five. There's three L's in there because some other Bill took his his spot. There's a guy. The there's a guy on Twitter whose handle is at Bill Landis, and I want the Twitter handle so bad. Come on, Bill Landis. He'll, he won't we'll give, give it you up. some free splash. Or at Doug Maurice, uh, you can send your Twitter questions there. So give us another couple there, Bill. Okay, uh, let's do. Oh, here's one. Okay, so this was. Um, we're recording this on a Monday. Urban Meyer's news conference was this morning, on Monday morning, and he announced that Dante Booker has an MCL sprain, um, and he may not play on Saturday against Tulsa. So this question uh, from Christopher Hawley on Twitter, he said, oh, do you see Joe Berger starting a place with Dante Booker this week? Uh, and if the injury persists, will Joe Berger keep starting, or will they put someone else in there? He says against a tougher opponent. Um, I think it's a good question. I think Joe Berger will probably start if Dante Booker is hurt. Um, the interesting thing about that is I asked Luke Fickle after the game about Dante Booker's status, and he said that the plan was, like, no matter which linebacker went down, Joe Berger was the next guy in, which probably isn't all the way true because I can't imagine they wouldn't put Jerome Baker in if, if uh, Chris Worley got hurt. But I think had Raekwon McMillan been hurt or Dante Booker been hurt, Joe Berger was the next guy to go in. Um, against a tougher opponent, I mean, if you're asking me if – Joe Berger will start against Oklahoma if Dante Booker's still injured. Probably. I don't know. Justin Hilliard's the other guy there, but Justin Hilliard's behind Joe Berger. They're not just putting Joe Berger up there because he's a senior. I think they, they wouldn't do anybody a favor. Right. I yeah. think they think that he's actually playing better than Justin Hilliard right now, so I think he'd be the guy. The one thing I would wonder about is, and Tulsa would be it. I mean, BG was it too, but like I guess the super spread team when you're getting people out in space, um, would you want a little more speed that Jerome, Break, uh, Jerome Baker might bring compared to Joe Berger? But I think the answer to that really is you just go nickel, and you only have two yeah. linebackers anyway. So I think they said Joe Berger played 39 snaps. They were in base defense against Bowling Green most of the time on first and second down, even when Bowling Green had four and five receivers split out wide. Uh, I think against a different team, you might really go to that fifth defensive back more and then – that spot, I think they did that. They were, I was watching that actually early in the game, and when they did that, uh, McMillan and Booker stayed on the field, and Worley came off. Yeah. But I think you, 
if you were doing that against a team where you were wanted to consistently have more speed on defense because a team was spreading you out, you could bring Berger off the field, keep Worley and McMillan on, and bring in Damon Arnett as your fifth DB. Okay, now attack me. Do we want, you want to go to that, or you want to do another Let's question? Do one more okay, question. Okay, one more quick. question. I okay. need to brace myself anyway. Okay, this question is from Slaz. This is, is Slaz Roth is the Twitter handle um, for the freshman who didn't play Saturday. And there's some confusion. Uh, there were definitely nine. Jack Wallaball's name was on the participation report. I did not see him play. I asked other reporters. They said they did not see him play. So we'll call it nine true freshmen played on Saturday. Um, does, if you didn't play, does it mean you're redshirting? Are there, are there true freshmen who did not play on Saturday who we think still might play later in the year? Well, I have. Well, by the time this podcast will be posted, my big redshirting story will be out. I would, I would say no. Um, and Bill, Bill, do you have that off the top of your head? The nine who played for sure. Uh, I can look it up real post. quick. Um, keep talking. I'll look it I up. mean, I, I think, uh, I think they've got to keep some of that stuff open. For instance, Demario McCall played. And actually, I don't have an answer on. Antonio Williams did not play. Right. Yeah. He did and not play. so. We had some. I had some question, at least, of whether Demario McCall coming in, whether he was more of an H back or more of a running back. Clearly, he's been at running back since he got here. Um, Dontre Wilson and Curtis Samuel are in between right now. Some tailback, some H back. But if you, I mean, why should if if McCall and Williams are both true freshmen, right? Mm-hmm. Are you going to play one and redshirt the other? Would that make sense, or would it just make sense get Antonio Williams out there and get him some reps too? I would play him if he's not hurt. I would I would get him out there for a couple snaps, just like you did with McCall. Right? No, it's like redshirt doesn't mean he can't. You can run the ball four times and it's gone. Like you know, throw him in for a few games. It's like you four or five carries and blow out games. I mean, that's what McCall did. McCall only touched the ball, I think, four or five times. Yeah, he just happened like, to score two touchdowns. When you he know, I don't think that – I mean, you had the conversation with Urban on Monday morning. Does it make sense to redshirt anybody ever? And if you have not read Doug's story on Google.com, go, go read it. But he basically said we can't redshirt people ever. And maybe there's some, you know – Exceptions to that, like offensive linemen and people who are injured, which Doug will and has written about, but it, it would be a complete difference. It'd be completely different in, in, if Antonio Williams never played than what Urban said on Monday. Who played so far, Bill? Okay, so Michael Jordan started uh, at left guard. Um, Austin Mack started on special teams and was in the ro- receiver rotation a bit. And then other guys who played uh, were Nick Bosa, Rajay Burns, a cornerback who actually had a pick six. Jonathan Cooper, defensive end, came in in the fourth quarter. Jordan Fuller, a safety, uh, definitely played some on special teams. I don't recall if he played uh, at safety or not. Um, Malik Harrison, linebacker, played. Keandre Jones, linebacker, played. McCall, who we just mentioned, played. And like I said, Jack Wallaball was on the participation report, but I actually don't think he played. So I think we're at nine guys. And it sounds like Malik Barrow is going to play this coming week, right? They're getting him ready uh, to help with the loss of Tracy Sprinkle inside. At defensive tackle, Larry Johnson was talking about they need to talk about that, which again, that talk about that is a, is a redshirt discussion, I think. But if they're if they're going to walk the walk of the talk they're talking, then Malik Barrow is going to play because if they have any inclination that he can help them at all, that's the other thing too. It's not even about can you help the team; it does it help the player. And I would argue a talented young guy who 
is not undergoing is not hurt or is not undergoing a, comp- a complete body transformation like an offensive lineman might have to do, plan him and get him a sniff. Whether he's quote ready or not, can be better I think than losing them to a redshirt year where you sort of mentally check out sometimes. Yeah, and I think uh, just. I don't and be touched on this, but like if you didn't play Saturday, I don't think that means you're going to redshirt. I think Antonio Williams could play, like you guys said. I think one of the tight ends is going to play. Um, Jake Hausman and Luke Farrell both did not play on Saturday. AJ Alexander was the number two tight end um, behind Marcus Ball. How about Benjamin Victor? I, he was he was another one too that I thought maybe they might try to get in the game. Um, just even if it's just like to start the clock, like Ari said on his eligibility, because that's important as this roster is completely unbalanced. Um, if there's a guy, and he had his black stripe removed, so if you think he's good enough to do that, I think they're going to look to get him into a game, and maybe it'll be as soon as this week if they, if they get up on Tulsa like they did up on Bowling Green. Okay, so we'll go back to that question to springboard us into um, our other major discussion here today. Again, this is the Buckeye Talk podcast for Cleveland.com. Doug Maurice with Bill Landis and Ari Wasserman. Uh, the question on Twitter was, did, did the 77-10 win over Bowling Green change our mind at all about how we view Ohio State or view this season? And let us start with Ari Wasserman, who basically went from Ohio State not being in the playoff to Ohio State being in the playoff based on a 67-point win over a MAC team. And uh, 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 I'm giving you your intro. I'm giving you your intro. <laughs> oh, but you're giving okay. a negative intro. Now, you're making now, me. It is the awesome podcast. You do a great job. You're a fine young man. You're almost 30. Uh, you're living life right. Am I? <laughs> what? Debate to that. Here's what I want to know. Give me the 30 to 60 second explanation of specifically what changed for you of what you thought this team was before the season started and what you think they are now based on what you saw Saturday. I thought that this team was going to come out against Bowling Green and win 34-17 and be sloppy and look like an inexperienced team that had no idea what it was doing. I did not believe that Curtis Samuel was the next coming at H-back. Um, I wasn't sure if JT Barrett was going to regain his 2014. And, and granted, I know, I know, I know they played a very bad team. But what I saw was a very purpose team doing what it wanted to do and doing it well without much hiccup. And part of the reason why my mind has switched is because of what happened to Oklahoma as well. And I think there are outside factors that um, are at play here in terms of the way their schedule is going to set up or whatnot. I kind of felt like I was watching the 2014 team out there. I cannot believe you just dropped a 2014 comparison when four days ago you were having Twitter fights with anybody who tried to compare this team to 2014. And in the post that I wrote that you're, like, I think angry about – I said this team is not comparable to 2014. I think they're different teams. What I'm saying is, is as I was watching that game, it felt like things were going the way it went for that team. 2014, they did not. They looked bad the first two games. I know. I understand that. They lost. Second. I was there. I'm saying at the end, when things were going well in 2014, it seemed like Ohio State has the trajectory of things feeling like that again. Okay, so let and that's me... what I feel, and I don't know. Uh, I, I like. The young receivers. I like JT Barrett coming back and, and being in a situation. I love that Malik uh, Hooker might be the next Von Bell ball hawking safety. I do think that there are things out there that are kind of a clue of what this team could be in five weeks. And if somehow, some way, they get past Oklahoma, which now seems from the guy who I said, wow, 
the the Houston spreads eleven and a half. Who goes? Well, you can't love Houston, and you can't love recruiting rankings and talent and like those two things. And you're right. And I thought twice about that, which makes me wonder how talented Oklahoma is. So I think that if there's a chance that Ohio State goes out and beats Oklahoma in Oklahoma, which now is a way bigger chance than we would have thought otherwise, that Ohio State's schedule sets up perfectly for them to mature and be in a really good spot by the end of the year when they're playing their toughest opponents. All right, we'll let Bill check in on this. That also is a schedule, by the way, that includes a visit to Wisconsin, which just beat LSU. So sometimes the team, one team can look good in a week, but other teams can look good too. So I don't, I have less quarrel with you thinking Ohio State is better than you maybe thought they would be. My greatest quarrel is with the idea of now you think they're a playoff team when, well, what about Texas? And what about Wisconsin being on the schedule? And what about the way Alabama looked? And what about all these other teams that also may have come out and look really good? Because there's only four spots there, man. And I think there are other teams that did things that were just as impressive as Ohio State. I think more impressive. impressive. But Michigan Michigan killed Hawaii, too. Like, that's still I don't know that... If you go back and you read the story, and maybe I'm misspeaking, I'm not saying that I am 100% convinced that Ohio State is going to be in the playoff and that they're the top four team in the country based on what I saw in Bowling Green. What I saw was a functional team that I think has a favorable schedule. I disagree with favorable I know. schedule. I, I know you do. I don't think Wisconsin's better than Ohio State just based on the talent that's on both of those teams. And I think that the biggest thing that I thought was going to happen was Ohio State was going to go and lose by 10 or more points at Oklahoma. And the fact that those two things happen this weekend to set up a potential run towards the end of the year gives me a idea that I think the Ohio State team with the talent on this team, and I want to use the word functional again, it seemed like things were working the right way. And you wrote a story after the game about how that was the perfect offensive output, and you had to have thought that to a certain extent because you wouldn't have written it despite the fact they were playing a team that wasn't very good. So I, I do think that there is a certain level of potential here that I wasn't necessarily sure existed a few days ago based on what we thought was ahead of them. And I think if they can beat Oklahoma and move on from that, I think they're going to be in a pretty good position to do some things that I wasn't quite sure they were able to do. Will they do that? I don't know. But I like the talent on this team. I like that they came out. You don't out. know, but you got your playoff headline out there. Well, yeah. I mean, are they a legitimate potential playoff team? Yeah, in my opinion, they are. But you, but I, but and like we, in, uh, we all like I was ten and two. I had them at ten and two before the end of the year. What was your record? Nine and three. Nine and three. Okay, so I was already one step ahead of you guys. And we're talking to the guy that has taken endless beatings from the entire Ohio State fan base about being too negative about the way that they are. So sorry if I'm flipping it too quickly. But I just know based on Urban Meyer's track record and some of the players on this team, I kind of okay, like the way Bill, things are going. If Oklahoma had played Bowling Green at home. Mm-hmm. How much do you think Oklahoma would have beaten Bowling Green by? Ohio State won by sixty-seven. Bowling Green, or excuse me, Oklahoma would have at least won by forty. I didn't watch Oklahoma Houston, so I don't know. Okay, so but what what changed or didn't change for you based on Week One? Nothing changed. I, I just I can't I can't go to a place where I'm changing my entire season forecast for Ohio State based off a seventy-seven to ten win over a team that was like almost dead last in the country last year in passing defense and then lost five of the starters who were on that defense, had a new head coach, and could not cover anyone. I, I rewatched the game on Sunday uh, to take a closer look at how Curtis Samuel played. 
Curtis Samuel had no one within five yards of him every time he touched the ball, and he's an incredible athlete. I get that. But there are teams down the road on the Ohio State schedule who aren't going to allow him to be that wide open. JT Barrett was throwing a wide open wide receivers on every single play with the exception of the touchdown pass to Noah Brown where Noah Brown made a great play on the ball. And KJ held a deep ball that he kind of dropped in, had a guy trailing him a step or two behind. So I guess I'll, call, I'll qualify that as close too. Other than that, JT Barrett was playing pitch and catch with guys who could not have been more wide open. Bowling Green stood no chance matching up defensively with Ohio State. Uh, it was great to see them score 77 points. I'm sure fans were happy with that. They probably could have had 1,000 yards of total offense if Urban Meyer didn't start pulling his starters in the third quarter. Uh, Bowling Green is bad. I think way worse than any of us imagined it Worse? Was. Yes. Worse than, like, not competitive. Based on a Bowling Green team that was good enough last year for his coach to get a Power 5 job. Right. Um, much worse. Right. Like, not competitive worse, right? Yes. And it goes back to, like, we, we talk about this every year when they play MAC teams, like how they always, like, they're always a, a year ahead of avoiding the best teams in the MAC. Like, the teams they played last year, Western, Western Michigan and Northern Illinois, were significantly better, way significantly better than the Bowling Green team that Ohio State just played on Saturday. Um, I think Ohio State looked good. I think it was good to get a look at receivers who we didn't know anything about. It was good to get a look at what they want to do um, from an offensive philosophy standpoint and, and be more balanced and spread the ball around and how they want to use Dontre Wilson and Curtis Samuel as tailbacks. But other than that, I, I'm not using anything that happened on Saturday that project forward. The, the thing that I was most dumbfounding to me Saturday was the idea of, I think they scored, what did they score? They scored in the 20s last year against Northern Illinois. Yes. I think it was 21 or 20, <clears throat> excuse me, 28. It wasn't as much how this team did that. It was more, how did last year's team not do that? It was 20 to 13. 20? <laughs> 20 to 13 last year. Like, and Northern Illinois had the ball in the fourth quarter, didn't they? Like four times with a chance like, to score. And Ezekiel yeah. Elliott, Michael Thomas, Nick Vanette, Taylor Decker, Cardell Jones, JT Barrett, like 20 to 13. They had 10 guys drafted in the first three rounds. They broke a record. They won by seven. This these guys won by sixty-seven. So I, I'm I'm in in writing what I did after the game, which again was that was like perfect. How did it happen in the first game with this team, and like didn't happen last year at all? Um, it was more to me astounding that it didn't happen last year at all. The idea that Ohio State would score seventy-seven points on a MAC team is less surprising to me than a year ago. But did they seem more advanced to you than you thought they would have? It seemed more natural. It, That's they were exactly better, what I'm trying to say. But 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 I'm not. They were the offense was more fluid than last year, and more fluid than I expected, given that so few of the guys catching and running the ball. So I before. I understand that Bowling Green sucks. I get it. I've been covering this team, too, and for the most part, I think I've been very rational. And, you know, maybe I'm being a tad irrational now with the way I feel about it now, as you both look at me like I'm a crazy person. And maybe I am. But just the idea that they are maybe five to ten steps ahead of where I thought they would be, even against a terrible team, makes me wonder if they are a little bit more ahead in competing against teams I thought they might not be able to compete against. Because, you know, Oklahoma didn't – maybe if Oklahoma would have won – 
and beat Houston, my entire idea would have been different. And I guess that might not be fair for this Ohio State team because I can't be basing my opinion on what Ohio State's going to do based on a team that is far away that I didn't watch. So maybe I jumped the gun a little bit. I understand that. But if Ohio State is a few steps ahead of where they were supposed to be in week one, then maybe they're going to be a few steps ahead of where we thought they were going to be in week three. A game that some people still think Ohio State had a chance to win uh, if they can, if they are more advanced and more fluid and more functional than they thought they were, then my opinion of what this season could be has changed a little bit. And I don't think that the drastic, the word playoff is a big word. I had them at ten and two, so that means they were on the verge of being in that conversation already. I don't think I went from this team is going to be eight and four to win the national title. I think I just might have given them the benefit of the doubt of winning one more game than I thought they were going to before. So I don't know if it's crazy. Maybe I am, but that's kind of the way I look at it. It's just hard, and it's um, – I don't know that it's ever going to change, but it's really hard to evaluate teams early in the season when they're playing non-conference games, and some teams are playing really good teams right away in yeah. very difficult scenarios, and other teams are playing teams that literally I think Ohio's third string could have beaten Bowling Green the other day. And it's not really a shot at Bowling Green. It's just life, man. It's your new coaching staff. You lost some key people. Stuff happens. So, again, if you're in Oklahoma right now, you probably think your team is not very good. If you're an Oklahoma fan, right? I I have not been monitoring Oklahoma fan Twitter, but I'm guessing it's not real happy at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, If Oklahoma had opened the season against Bowling Green... Maybe they would not be saying, wow, that was like literally the best offense that you could hope for, which was what I wrote after the game on Saturday. But what they would be saying is, well, they maybe got a couple of kinks to work out. You know, like, okay, like, um, we'll be fine. Stuff happens. And if Ohio State had played Houston, I mean, I don't, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know. They wouldn't have won 77 to 10. They might have won. They might have won. I mean, they, they, they looked really good. They might have won. Um, but then you would have said, well, how good is Houston? I don't know. I mean, I don't know that people were saying, oh my God, now this is, so it's just a very hard thing, I think, um, to take too much out of it. And, um, I don't know. And the thing is, and, and I respect, I don't think Urban Meyer plays games with this. Maybe I'm a sucker on this, but Monday he came in and said, it was good, not great. Yeah. And he said the receivers weren't that great, actually. So, I mean, there's that thing that coaches can do where, like, you play awesome and you say, oh, well, it wasn't that good. And then you're, like, being false humble and you're false motivating a team that you don't want to get big-headed after a 67-point win. But um, but he was saying, like, it was, you know, I think he was buying, having looked at the tape, was a little more like, well, you know, they didn't cover anybody. So our receivers still need to run some better routes and we still got to do this. I think the thing that's going to be interesting, and I'll ask both of you this question, they rotated a million people in a million different spots. What are they going to do against Oklahoma? Are they going to play 10 receivers? Are they going to play 10 defensive linemen? Are they going to be moving guys in and out like that? Or do they have to settle on, these are the three guys we really want to get the ball to? Because James Clark dropped the pass that was there, right? Yeah. It was fine. Stuff happens. You can't drop that pass against Oklahoma. So you've got to make sure you're throwing it to a guy that you think can catch it. Now, maybe it's James Clark. Everybody drops a pass every now and then. But 
specifically, I guess, start with the receivers, Bill. What will they and should they do to work that out, to figure it out for Oklahoma? Or can you just run out three different groups of receivers every three series? Uh, it's a really interesting question. I, I honestly don't know because I think they're going to play Tulsa this weekend, and it's going to be a lot of the same stuff, I think. I, I don't know Tulsa very well, but I know they were terrible at defense last year. Um, and they, they played San Jose State. You can't really take anything away from that. Uh, I think Ohio State's going to be in a position where they're playing a team that they're way more talented than and can basically do whatever they want, particularly on offense. So they're going to keep rolling guys through the first two weeks. And if it works, which I imagine it will because Tulsa's not very good, I think they still go into the Oklahoma game with that mentality. And I guess you could argue whether or not you want to be experimenting with things when you're against Oklahoma. But if it works in weeks one and two, I think they at least open the game against Oklahoma trying to do the same thing. And if they're in the second quarter and the passing game's not really getting going, then maybe they pare it down to four or five or six guys who they're really counting on wide receiver and, and don't go as far as to 10, which I think was the number they got to against Bowling Green. But um, as long as it's good against Tulsa, I think they open that way against Oklahoma. It just depends on, in my opinion, the idea of rotating. And the thing that we talked about when we were rotating is, are they rotating because all guys are good or are they rotating because um, – you know, they're not sure of who they should be. And if there is a middle ground in there of there are four or five receivers who are clear-cut better, I'd like to think that Noah Brown is a clear-cut better option than James Clark. I will. I think that there will be some rotating, but I think it might be five instead of ten. Because I think when you're playing against your best teams on your schedule, you're going to play with your best guys the most time. And if there were reps that Noah Brown didn't get in the Bowling Green game, and he might not get in the Tulsa game. I imagine that he will get all the reps when he's ready to go in the Oklahoma game. All right, let's do a lightning round here on the uh, Nestle Splash Buckeye Talk podcast. A um, couple more questions. We got to keep this thing under an hour. Uh, okay. Bill, what do you got? Okay, I'll bring some. Ari, bring some because you got one, a couple questions that I did I not know. get. So okay. uh, I'll, I'll run through the ones that I have that I think are good. Um, will Tyler Durbin keep the kicker spot? Uh, I say yes. Yes, yes, that was my prediction. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I, I said it last week. I don't think Sean Nurnberger is going to kick a ball again at Ohio State. Um, let's see. Another one. That's the Joe Berger one. Will, uh, oh yeah, will Nick Bosa, because we, Tracy Sprinkle is injured, uh, knee injury, had surgery on Sunday, is most likely out for the season. Uh, a lot of talk on Monday was about who steps up a defensive tackle. Do we think defensive ends will slide down at all? And if so, do we think Nick Bosa could be one of those players that slides down to defensive tackle? Yeah, it didn't seem like the conversation was going that way, not on anything other than third down, which is the look they do anyway. Uh, By their count, Nick Bosa played 22 snaps in the opener. Mm -hmm. Larry Johnson said about 25 is the range they're looking for. Uh, They just lost a guy to a knee injury. Nick Bosa is coming off an ACL as a senior in high school. They are not going to force him back. And try to play him 45 snaps and end up with another knee injury. So I, I don't think Nick Bosa's role, in my opinion, will not change at all based on Tracy Sprinkle's injury. And I think they have enough, you know, there are questions of defensive tackle for sure, but they have enough options to test out that I don't think the long-term answer is going to be the way they're doing it. Nick Bosa or Jonathan Cooper or Jalen Holmes getting any tackle action. I like 95% agree with that. I think it's possible Slightly possible that we see Jalen Holmes on the interior defensive line on a something that's not a third down play. But if it's not him, I don't think it would be anybody else. All right, I have a few. Do you want me to get, do mine? Yeah, that's all I have. Go ahead. Okay, I've got actually quite a bit. Thank you for liking my Twitter better than Bill's. <laughs> um, first of all, this is a question that I think has been out there a little bit from 
Radum27, R-A-D-U-M. Oh, that's our guy. Yeah, he's good. Is this debut? Yeah. He goes, is this the fastest Buckeyes team that Urban Meyer has ever had? Well, it's the current team, and the current team is always better than any team in history. So I guess it must be true. They were faster than Bowling Green. They're not faster than the draft picks that came off the board yesterday. I mean, everything in, the, everything in life, right? That's society. The current day is better than it used to be, and nobody has any memory. I right. mean, like, Percy Harvin and Joe Hayden played at Florida. You know, like, I don't know. I mean, it's just I, I, the whole speed discussion. But he meant, silly. He, he meant his fastest team at Ohio State or his fastest team At Ohio team State ever. or Ohio State. Okay. No, it's not. I don't think so. I mean, there was, yeah. No. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of guys playing in the NFL for a lot of money off last year's team. Um, okay, this one is from Fez the Buckeye at Fez X Aldro. That's my guy who's picking games with me this week. That's your dude. Week. Yeah. Defensive line seems to be the biggest concern, particularly in the middle of DT really struggling that bad. It was a little bit like what we just got done discussing. But do you think that defensive tackles are struggling? I think we have to see like a more traditional offense, yeah. maybe to get a sense of that. Bowling Green got the ball out quick, um, but it did not seem, Bill, right, that they were there was not a lot of push. No, it, it sounds like maybe Tulsa might try to run the ball a little. I don't. Bowling Green didn't try to run the ball at all. Um, Tulsa ran for 300 yards last week. Um, so maybe we'll get a better idea. So I, I don't think you can say one way or the other if they, if they struggled against Bowling Green. Okay, we're going to get – this is Dan Ban at Dan Ban. He is saying, let's get ahead of ourselves and <coughs> forecast Urban Meyer's replacement and when. Ooh. The reason why I'm using this is because we wrote about this kind of last week. Doug did a slideshow on our site that had all of our – in our mind who we think could fit as Ohio State's replacement. I just wanted to remind everybody – Please go read our Is Ohio State the Most Indestructible Team in College Football uh, series that we did. We put a lot of work into that, and that's one of the topics that's on our site. So go check that out, Dan Ban. Um, Are we not answering the question? I guess we could pick our guy, but... I think Urban Meyer is 52. Um, I think he's got more in him than I would have guessed a year or two ago. Um, and I think it's a dangerous game to play. I mean, it's, it's sort of unfair while it's fun also. So two points... I think the NFL is possible for him at some point down the line, and I think he'll coach for a while. Um, so I'm going to go seven to ten years out there, and the guy that I think is – I'm not predicting this. The guy to keep your eye on is Mike Vrabel. Ooh. I like that. I'm not even going to give a guess. That was a good guess. I don't even know where to begin on this on this because it's Sterling just... Gilbert. All right. Those are, those are good enough. Um, I think that's it. The one person is surprised there was more – McCall, this guy's name is Chris at Willicky. Surprise, McCall got more action than Paris Campbell or had made more plays. Will that continue the first game, or there's too many guys to touch the ball that's making this issue? Paris Campbell, I think, was only targeted once, uh, and it was a play down the sideline where he came back and got a pass interference flag. I don't know if JT Barrett looked to throw his way another time against Bowling Green. Um, slightly surprised by that, I would say, because it sounded like he was the number two receiver. Um coming into the season, and Noah Brown got his targets, and Paris Campbell didn't seem to get his. Um, but they like him as a blocker, so he's going to be out there either way. But, yeah, it was surprising, I guess. Yeah, I don't know target. that it's going to continue, though. Uh, you know, as time goes on, I mean, I think uh, as we – McCall was a kind of a beneficiary of a blowout and a freshman who got his touches. Right. I think Paris Campbell's actually in their plans, so I think that I would anticipate Paris Campbell getting way more targets and touches than, than DeMario this year. And that's it, really, for me. That's talking Buckeyes. Uh, that was an awesome podcast. Yeah. Was that awesome? It was good. Yeah, because there's awesome. anger in your heart. Yeah. There's always anger in my heart. I just hide it better. Um, <laughs> so that was our awesome Ohio State podcast. Um, just as a side note, uh, if 
people to know this, I'm going to be sort of like sliding over to a columnist role. So I'm still going to be doing a lot of Ohio State, but not quite uh, doing the beat work with these two as much anymore. Uh, so make sure you are following Ari Wasserman and Bill Landis on Twitter. They will continue to give you Ohio State coverage each and every second of each and every minute of each and every hour of each and every day. So um, thank you for listening to another edition of Buckeye Talk. For Ari and for Bill, I'm Doug. See ya.